Sometimes the natural world is gross, sexy, horrifying, violent, and all those other words you look for in late night TV. This show is intended for mature audiences. I know I said that foxes are one of my favorite animals, but the echidna is probably my favorite animal. Yeah. They are pretty cool. I didn't know much about them until having the chance to work with them, but they are pretty fascinating and weird. Everything about them is weird. Yeah, they they don't make sense. Name a body part or an organ and it's weird. And if we can't describe how it's weird, we just haven't done the research yet. I love that they look like a literal animal from Harry Potter, the Nifflers, but even mm-hmm. better because it has spikes on it. So it's yeah. even cooler than the fantasy magic version. Which is rarely a thing. Most of the time, the fantasy stuff is better. But I argue echidnas are better. Way better. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just jealous that Australia just has them walking around. You can yes. just see one. I know. Like hanging out. Although they can pop your tires, though. Apparently it's a thing where if you're, like, late out at the bar and you come back to your car, you do need to check under the tires. Because they just like, oh, this is a nice place to burrow in and settle down. And then they're spiky. And then poor Echidna is dead. And so are your tires. That's crazy. But if you volunteer for a rehab center, you get to take care of Echidna's. Which sounds like heaven on earth. I know everyone wants to go to like the sloth rehab centers down in Costa Rica and Panama, but an uh, echidna rehab center just has to be the happiest place on earth. Move over, Disney. It's a kidna world. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. How many echidnas does Disney have? You don't have echidnas. Uh, I would be surprised. Very few places have echidnas. Uh, so if listeners aren't aware, uh, Australia has a lot of regulations about their native wildlife to protect them. So they do not allow echidnas to leave Australia anymore. I think that went into effect in the 70s, the 1970s. Um, so there are a few dozen echidnas in the United States, but it's very difficult to breed them. And there's no way to get more from zoos in Australia. So they are a very, very rare sight. And if you are lucky enough to be near a zoo that has one, go check it out and just stare in wonder at the patch of dirt you're undoubtedly staring at. (laughs) And since a lot of people probably haven't seen one before, Leilani, do you want to give us our 90-second overview of echidnas? Yes and no. Um, So because they're the most amazing creature on the planet that we know of currently... I am going to rebel this episode and throw the 90-second limit out of the window because I know most people have not learned a lot about echidnas, and they are just so incredible, and everyone needs to understand why they're the best animal. So I'm going to talk a lot about echidnas. Please feel free to jump in and break it up with questions, additions, whatever you want, but I'm going to give people a proper introduction to Echidnas, the extraordinary egg-laying mammal, Whoa. which is the title of a very good book. You should all check it out. See, I just thought of Phineas and Ferb, but that's the other egg-laying mammal. Maybe we'll talk about them another day. Feel free to jump in and join me. Echidnas are incredible little animals that are perhaps best known for being some of the very few mammals that lay eggs. In fact, the echidna family makes up four out of five species of monotreme, or egg-laying mammal. They're found throughout Australia and New Guinea, regardless of climate or environment. They can be found in mountains, forests, savannas, arid regions, snowy mountaintops, and agricultural areas due to their incredible adaptability. 
Echidnas get their name from Greek mythology's Echidna, the mother of all monsters, because they appear to be many animals combined into one body plan. They have the body parts that resemble the spines of a hedgehog, the tongue and nose of an anteater, the paws of a mole, and that's just the outside. Every single part of Echidnas is strange and remarkable in some way. And perhaps even more oddly, humans are more related to all of those animals than Echidnas are. Echidnas spend most of their time in hollow logs or foraging for food. Typically, echidnas eat ants and termites, but some species eat worms, and some echidnas occasionally indulge in larvae. They root through the dirt using their snouts and find tasty insects, not just with their excellent sense of smell, but also using electroreceptors in their snouts. That's right, echidnas appear to sense the minute electrical fields given off by insects hidden in the dirt. This foraging behavior and their burrowing seem to play a key role in creating aerated, nutrient-rich soil. Researchers estimate that a single echidna can turn over 200 cubic meters of soil in a year, and the effects of this richer soil appears to increase local species diversity in the soil. You're welcome. Wow. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. Yeah. We wouldn't survive without echidnas, and by we, I mean Australia. (gasps) Yeah. I think it's crazy that they can live where it's snowing. Yeah. Yep, they can live in the snow. Don't they have one of like the widest temperature ranges of the lot of animals? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're found all over Australia, just about anywhere. And they can survive in snowy mountaintops at high elevations with thinner air. And they can survive in the outback. It's not ideal, but they can make do. I'm now just imagining little echidna astronauts colonizing different planets. So I feel like they would probably be better at it than we would. Yes. Oh, we should have added one of them to Perseverance. We should have put an echidna up there. So what you're saying is instead of studying like the tardigrade, we should be studying echidnas? Yes. Why not both? (gasps) We can colonize Mars with tardigrades and echidnas. Oh, that's the secret to creating good soil on Mars. Echidnas. (gasps) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly no less charismatic microorganisms. Oh, no, just the echidnas. Oh, no. And I'm sure, you know, they won't harm the agricultural areas and dig up all of our crops. It'll be fine. And if they do, I'm sure you can live off of just the cuteness that you receive from staring at the echidna (laughs) while you slowly starve to death because none of us can be Mark Wahlberg in the Martian. I mean, their cuteness will just sustain you. It's fine. Generally, echidnas are solitary animals, but they don't seem to mind the company of other echidnas. It's not unusual to see multiple echidnas sharing a hollow log. For the most part, though, they find their own way until mating season. I've just died from the idea of multiple echidnas together sharing a log like a little adorable punk family with their spikes. I'm picturing all of the echidnas hanging out in a log together because I picture something like a bunch of sea urchins that you see in a coral reef, but it's on land and they're echidnas in a log. And then sometimes you just see their little paws. Yeah. I'm imagining them having tea. With little top hats and tea party dresses and bows. Oh, like sea urchins will have hats? Yeah. Oh, this is great. The little baby ones have little bows on their quills and... Oh my god. And then they use their long tongues to go... In the tea? Yeah. (laughs) Yes! And they can be sitting around a table and one of them will be like, Hey, can I try your tea? To an echidna across the table. And they'll be like, yeah, sure. And they'll just stick their tongue out. They don't even have to get up. Oh my goodness. Okay, I've collected myself mostly. Continue. (laughs) All right. 
For the most part, though, they find their own way until mating season, and they form an echidna train. Although the timing depends on the region in which they live, female echidnas simply begin walking, and up to 10 males follow single file behind her. After this bizarre and poorly understood mating ritual, a female echidna lays a single egg in her pouch, and it hatches after about 10 days. The resulting puggle, which is the cutest baby animal on the planet, and I am in no way biased, remains inside the pouch until it begins to develop spines. At that point, mother echidnas will literally bury their puggles alive and return periodically to feed them. That's the way you should take care of children. All children. Disclaimer, please don't do that. Echidnas spend a lot of time underground and need very little oxygen to survive, so the babies are just fine and well hidden from predators. Once they can live independently, echidnas continue growing slowly, only reaching full size at three to five years old. Because of their slow basal metabolism and cellular resistance to aging, they can easily live to be 50 years old. Their metabolic rate is about a third of a placental mammal's ordinarily, but they can slow it down even further when they go into torpor, which is a state of decreased physiological activity similar to hibernation. Torpor allows them to survive the temperature extremes of their diverse habitats. They can survive fire and ice, literally. They can dig, swim, and even climb, all with surprising skill. It seems like the only thing they can't do is fly, but give them another 50 million years or so, and who knows? Their amazing digging capabilities are thanks to their thick bones, powerful paws, and stance that slays their legs almost like a reptile's. Digging is an excellent method to escape predators, but when caught, echidnas, of course, use their sharp spines to defend themselves. They have muscles that move and erect each individual spine to create a defense so strong that only the toughest and cleverest predators like dingoes and goannas pose a threat. Oh, yeah. I have had many a a poke on my tummy from holding an echidna. Yeah. I had to wear garden gloves once. Whoa. Yeah. Interestingly, I got a scar from an echidna, not from their quills or spines, but from an echidna, like, trying to dig through me. I can see that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's the digging that you want to watch out for because they have no concept of barriers. If they want to get through something, they just dig through it. It's virtually impossible to contain an echidna unless you have some very, very strong concrete. Remember that time you found an echidna quill in your shoe? Oh, that was delightful. (laughs) (laughs) As tough as they are, the spines are simply modified hair. And echidnas, even though they're mammals, don't have nipples and instead have lactation patches. So they secrete milk. They almost like sweat it and the babies lick it up. Which is actually the default thing for mammals. Breasts are essentially modified sweat glands. Yep. Interesting. It is one of my favorite gross fun facts. (laughs) Yeah. Is this why bats have nipples in their armpits or like close to their armpits? I don't know, but that sounds at least on the right track to me. Bat nipple people, hit us up. Yeah, let us know. Any more studies? That would be a great guest. As far as we can tell, echidnas are probably pretty smart, which you wouldn't guess just from looking at them or from looking at the platypus, their only other relative. The platypus has very smooth, small, simple brains, but echidnas, on the other hand, have relatively larger brains for their body size, and their cerebral cortex has a lot of folds and fissures to increase the surface area of the brain. And folds and fissures and increased surface area are often correlated with higher intelligence. It doesn't necessarily mean intelligence, but there's a strong correlation, just like human brains. Lots of folds in the brain, lots of activity going on there. What we're learning about different animals' brains is also... So much of what we've done over time has been very 
primate focused because we're humans and we care a lot about learning about ourselves, which is important for medical fields. But we tend to carry that through with us when looking at other animals and looking at them through the lens of comparison with people. So now we're learning from animals like birds where their brains work differently, even though they aren't as folded. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have less functionality to them. Right. Yeah, that's why trying to look at the physical structure of a brain and interpret intelligence is so difficult because while you can find correlations and general trends, you're always going to find something that completely throws that out the window. So historically, we would look at brain size, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And then we thought, okay, well, maybe cephalization and increased folds means intelligence, but not always. So that's why I say echidnas are probably intelligent. And this is one of the things that makes us think that, yeah, maybe. So the complexity of their neocortex in particular seems to suggest that they are more neurologically sophisticated, like a primate or a carnivore. And the degree of the folding that they have is actually pretty similar to that of a squirrel monkey. They have high neural density within uh, their brains, which indicates more complexity, uh, which could also correlate with higher intelligence. Again, not totally sure. But it's the prefrontal cortex that gets very interesting. Now, you may have heard of the prefrontal cortex in people uh, relating to planning and problem solving, decision making, attention, all of that executive functions that we associate with traditional human type intelligence and problem solving. So that is a very interesting area to look at in animals. So in humans, when you electrically stimulate the cerebral cortex, the region that doesn't either produce a motor response or a sensory perception of some kind, that part is what we um, think is the part that is the prefrontal cortex, the region that is involved in these types of uh, thinking, the higher thinking and executive functioning. And in humans, the prefrontal cortex seems to be about 29% of the cerebral cortex. And in the echidnas, it's 50%. Wow. Yeah. The foldy part, the cerebral cortex of the brain, there are portions of it that are responsible for sensory information and for motor functions. So if you've heard stories about experiments where you electrically stimulate the brain and then someone's arm lifts up, that's the motor cortex that was just stimulated. Or if you electrically stimulate the sensory cortex, the person who is electrically stimulated will then smell roses or coffee or whatever, some kind of perception. And then the areas of the cerebral cortex more or less, that don't produce something like that is considered the prefrontal cortex from there. Now, that's a gross generalization and simplification of the brain. You know, it's very complex, of course. So it's probably not as simple as 50% of their brain is the prefrontal cortex um, and is involved in thinking. But this is the region where we would expect quote unquote, thoughts to come from and higher thinking and, you know, neurological capabilities. So it's really interesting that it's so large. And there are a lot of different theories about this part of the echidna brain. Maybe part of that is sensory that we just can't detect. You know, how do we know exactly that we're stimulating the brain and the echidnas aren't smelling something? They do have a lot of real estate on their sensory cortex for olfactory input smells. And maybe part of what we can't quite figure out how to identify yet 
responds to the electroreception they have, the electrical fields that they detect on their snouts. So that's a possibility. We don't know. But what do they think about? What are they thinking? Yeah. <laughs> do echidnas dream of electric sheep? Oh, I'm just going to throw it in. Echidnas dream at 25 degrees Celsius. <gasps> Well, REM sleep, let's be clear. For a long time, we thought that echidnas didn't experience REM sleep, but it was because we were studying them in cold lab conditions. And in 21 degrees Celsius, where they were typically running these experiments, it was too cold for echidnas to fall into REM. But we found that at 25 degrees Celsius, echidnas experience REM sleep. They just gotta be comfy. They just gotta be comfy. And if it's too hot, they don't have REM either. More proof that echidnas are the cutest. The cutest. But there was a scientist who observed, I think, young echidnas, and they were like kicking in their sleep, kind of like dogs do, or, you know, twitching associated with dreams, I guess, that we would think of. And was curious because he hadn't observed that in echidnas previously. And so did more thorough sleep studies on echidnas at different temperatures and found that at 25 degrees, they fall into REM Celsius. That is is adorable. But also kind of illuminates our own biases and constraints. Like scientists often run things in very controlled settings at a specific temperature because it's comfortable for us. And we don't always think about the effect that temperature could have on our experiments. Yeah. And most of the time it's probably negligible, but then you have something like the echidna. They just got to be They're comfy just so enough. Good. They just got to yeah. be comfy. They're so good. They're temperature-dependent creatures. It was really cool <laughs> that they have such a wide range in temperatures that they can live in. I was just thinking that. Yeah, but they're just, they're so specific with this, with their sleep. Yep. With their dreaming, at least. But then, yeah, I wonder then not all echidnas, depending on where they live, would experience that REM sleep. Right. Can you imagine being an echidna who had never had REM sleep with dreams before? And then suddenly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's like the colorblind glasses, but echidnas in sleep. Now, I'm sure that they are able to find, you know, their happy medium at some point. Or Or they can dig down where it's a more consistent temperature. But yeah, I'm sure it's not as common for a lot of them. Maybe it's like a like a phenotypic plasticity sort of thing where if you take an echidna that's living in cooler oh, yeah. temperatures, then it would yeah. be able to REM sleep in those cooler temperatures. So oh maybe they God. just grab these echidnas from somewhere that was naturally right. close to 25 Celsius. But other possibilities for what this region of the brain for the echidna could be is actually related to their food. So animals that feed on replenishing resources like nectar or insect mounds, they often have really good spatial memories and they keep track of their prey sources or food sources and they know how much of this source they can feed off of and how much they need to leave behind and when they can go back and visit it. So there's a lot of cognition and thinking and planning that happens in animals that feed on replenishing resources and echidnas, uh, especially short-beaked echidnas, eat a lot of ants and termites. So their prefrontal cortex could be involved in planning out where and when and how they get their food. It could be resource management because they don't want to run out of food in their home range and then need to spend that energy moving outside of their home range and go on a quest to find food where they don't know if it's there or not. 
and they have been observed adjusting their behavior and foraging in response to prey abundance in their home ranges. So they may actually be farming their prey using that bigger region of their brains. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So another positive mark for them colonizing Mars then, right? They can not sure. only aerate the soil, but they can like get the farm started. Well, not like plant farms, but insect farms. If okay. we move to an insect. <laughs> That's a really good source of protein. Yeah, it yeah. is. If we move to um, ant-based protein. They can manage it for us. They'll manage it. They'll harvest it for us. They'll or probably they'll eat, eat it all. all. Yeah. <laughs> they'll leave some, maybe. Mm. If I give them a yeah. tiny teacup. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing that indicates that they could have higher intelligence than we tend to give them credit for is the behavioral tests, the cognitive behavioral tests that we've done on them so far. So kind of like rats in a maze, they perform very, very well when they're trying to find food and navigating those mazes. And even when presented with things like Skinner boxes, where they push a lever and it gives them food and they have to perform different kinds of tasks in order to get the food reward, they perform amazingly on every cognitive test that we've given them so far. Their intelligence does seem to match a rat's at the very least. So every single measure that we have indicates that they are intelligent and they're not just like these bumbling, burrowing little animals that they appear to be. There's actually some kind of thought and planning uh, going on in those little brains. And just to sum it up in that book that I love, Echidna, the Extraordinary Egg-Laying Mammal, that's full of delightful information, but also delightful quotes like this one about their intelligence. If echidnas think, what do they think about? Perhaps they have invented a variety of thought games, such as cerebral chess, where the opposing forces are ants and termites with delectable queens ruling soldier knights and indigestible pawns. So I just like to imagine Echidna sitting there imagining out complex stories of like termite castles with little termite knights rescuing princesses from the evil Echidna. (laughs) That's amazing. These are truly magical creatures. (laughs) Yeah. So I know, I know, I rebelled again. Not really a series of facts that aren't family-friendly, but also not a deep dive I'd be able to do in a zoo. No, that's awesome. That is an issue that we ran into, though, in general, is echidnas are just so pure. (laughs) They're so pure. They are the make love, not war of the monotremes. Yeah, so good. Make... mm. Well, yeah, I chose to go with that wholesome fact about how they may be evil geniuses plotting our demise with their super brains rather than the anecdotal stories I found about male echidnas waking up early from hibernation to rape hibernating females. So pure. Well, that does segue into my fact. (laughs) So echidnas are really good at breeding, which is really impressive when you think about it. For animals that enter into hibernation or torpor, in general, if this animal is only breeding seasonally, their testes are going to be drawn back to their body and then descend again during breeding season. Same kind of process with the sperm cells. They return back to an immature state, then return to a mature state during breeding season. This takes time and energy to pull off. For animals entering a hibernation or a torpor, This process usually won't stop of restarting all of that breeding equipment until they are already out of hibernation or torpor. 
for example, bears, it takes them about four months after they wake up again to be ready to breed. For male echidnas, it's only about a month. And so you might be thinking, okay, so maybe they just have really small testes and it's just really fast to refill the tank. It's not. For a body mass comparison I found, woodchucks are roughly the same body mass as an echidna. For a woodchuck, their testes are about 0.18% of their body. For an echidna's, it is about 1%, 1.0. That's a lot more. That is about five times more. And yet, only takes about a month. How do they do this? There are some mammals like bats uh, that are actually even faster. They can mate immediately after hibernation. But it's because they go about it a different way. They already produce and store the sperm before they go into hibernation. So as soon as they wake up, whole process is completed. Echidnas don't do that either, though. Uh, They kind of do an in-between cheat. They start the whole process called testes recudescence. I can never pronounce this word. And a few months before the hibernation, but they don't complete it. For example, because we're talking about how different echidnas live in different ranges. Because of that, their breeding seasons are a few months off, depending on what species and what part of Australia you're talking about. So for Tasmanian kidneys, they start this process of essentially refilling the tank again in late December, and then they enter hibernation in February, which means by the time that they're out of torpor again, they're already three quarters of the way through the process. So they kind of take a halfway road where they don't just wait until afterwards. They don't complete the process before they enter torpor. They just kind of start, take a real long nap, wake up and finish the little bit (laughs) that they have left. In addition to uh, waking up and immediately trying to mate, they are able to successfully start mating again about a month after they wake up out of torpor, which is really impressive. That is And I bet if you told any North American zookeeper that echidnas are really good at breeding, they would just stare at you like you had a four-headed penis. Speaking of which, Emily. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there there is an old saying, you know, two heads are better than one. (laughs) Oh, God. But uh, (laughs) what about five heads? So, like, Echidnas are super smart. They're super cute. Oh, their actual head is included in there. Okay. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, no. Echidnas do (laughs) have five heads, apparently. Of course, they have the one that's super cute with the super long snoot. The one that has the brain. Yes, the one that has the brain. But then, yes, scarily, an echidna does have a four-headed penis. So... Echidnas have a single opening, like birds and reptiles, called the cloaca, where they pee, poop, and will lay their eggs. Normally, the penis will hang out in there when it's not erected at all. But then when the echidna has to urinate, it will just urinate straight out of the cloaca. It actually doesn't urinate using its penis. So the penis is purely used for reproduction. So it doesn't have specialized each head is doing a different function like a multicolored pen. Nope. But normally, though, when the penis is erect, only two heads will swell at a time. So there's two heads on the left side and two heads on the right. But only one side will swell at a time for reproduction. And it's interesting because it lines up pretty well with the female echidna reproductive system that is double branched. 
So it's basically two heads that fit inside the female, and then the female has two different tracks that lead to the same uterus. So yeah, that's pretty cool. But we didn't always know this. <laughs> so when we were first studying echidnas and reproduction, we were trying to collect sperm samples. Um, and at the University of Queensland, they were trying to stimulate a male echidna that they had and ended up doing it to where the whole thing swelled. And they looked at it and then looked at the female <laughs> echidna and was like, hmm, something's not right here. <laughs> they realized that they essentially had accidentally overstimulated this male echidna to where all four heads were oh, erect and like ready to go, you know, but really only two are meant to go inside of the female at a time. The thought uh, behind the evolutionary purpose of this is that it makes the male more prolific when it comes to mating. That in addition to the fact that the sperm that they produce isn't normal, they're not singular cells that are kind of all swimming around together. They're actually little conglomerates called sperm bundles that are produced. So when the male echidna ejaculates, it's little globules of sperm that actually travel faster. So... Yeah, it's like a spitball, Teamwork. if you will. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> See, nothing about an echidna is normal. Not a single cell in their bodies is normal. I was about to make a terrible joke about, well, it could be a spitball or a swallow ball, but... <laughs> oh, no, no. That is, that is too Too much. far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... In these sperm bundles, though, there can be up to or, or hundreds of sperm cells in one single bundle. Um, so also thought to help increase how prolific they are in mating. And also the faster the sperm is, it's going to help increase competition too. Males are able to produce more and stronger sperm bundles. It's more likely that they will be successful, especially when you figure you got about 10 or 11 males competing for one female and that echidna mm -hmm. train. You want to have some fast, I guess for humans, we say fast swimmers, but for echidnas, it's like fast globs. I don't know. It's sounding more and more like the echidna reproductive system is NASCAR Mario Kart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <gasps> yeah. Because you got the double branching yeah. too that all. Yeah. Rainbow Road. Oh, oh boy. Now I've ruined Mario Kart. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really I'm just have. imagining rainbows that make baby puggles. Oh. Puggles are born from rainbows. Well, interestingly, though, <laughs> speaking of puggles, we mentioned earlier that it's actually tricky to tell the difference between a male and a female echidna. And as I mentioned, their penis is normally inside of their body unless it's erect. Um, but both male and female echidnas have pouches, too. So yeah. you can't even just tell based on that. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They're very super secretive about it, except for when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you definitely know. There's no mistaking that. Ready to go. <laughs> when it happens. A four-headed one. <laughs> that's just four heads too many. As someone who has been sent various terrifying, honestly, anything at 2 a.m. by drunk friends who are like, you're the biology friend. <laughs> How does this work? <laughs> I mean, echidnas are pretty high up there on the list. They are. They are. Yeah. So much so to where for our special fun game today, while reading about echidna penises, I found out that there are, is a whole world of animals that have strange penises. So if everyone's ready, we are going to play 
I didn't really think of a name for this game, so we can always add one in if we can think one. Dicking Around. Ooh. Oh. All right. <laughs> so we're going to play Dicking Around then, uh, which is a guessing game. Uh, so I have six additional animals to the echidna that have weird penises in some way. I hate so this game already. <laughs> I am going to read you facts about this particular organism's penis, and it's going to be up to you guys to guess which one it belongs to. Okay. So I'm if- going to fail. Alec has the... Like, yeah, no, I have I have literally had friends who have opened up Bad Dragon before and yeah. been like, how many of these are based off of what real animals and how realistic? Alec definitely has the advantage in this one, but I'll do my best. All right. I don't like that this is my new uh, <laughs> my new epithet. <laughs> <laughs> it's your new party trick. Oh, God. Oh, Name that penis. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So if you all want to play along as well. Uh, anyone who's listening, feel free to write them <laughs> down. It is the water boatman, which is a type of bug, the Argentine bluebill lake duck, a flatworm, a barnacle, a bean weevil, and an argonaut. An argonaut is a type of nautilus related to squids and octopuses. It's a type of cephalopod. Can they also tear theirs off? We'll have to wait and see. Gosh, Alec. Sorry. No spoilers. <laughs> Stop showing off your knowledge of penises. Yeah, Alec G. I mean, he does have an advantage, right? This is true. I've ordered many off of Amazon for myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I have no shame in my trans-friendly jokes for myself. All right. So the first one is probably uh, more common. This is one that I actually knew about before learning about all of these other weird penises that it's the duck have it is not the duck no it's the Uh, barnacle would you please it's the barnacle this animal is hermaphroditic uh, which basically means it has both male and female reproductive organs but they will fight each other to impregnate each other via a process known as penis fencing oh it's the flatworms right yeah it is the flatworms Yeah. yeah So it's actually pretty interesting. You can see lots of different videos of this on YouTube. <laughs> uh, basically, they'll fight with little lance-like protrusions, which is the penis. And all they have to do is stab each other. And whichever one stabs first wins. It's really violent, too. It is pretty violent, yeah. But the thought is that, you know, because they're hermaphroditic, it's more energy costly to be the female in that instance because you have to produce the eggs and do all of that stuff. So they really want to try so hard to not be that female in that relationship fight, so to speak. It's like the animal version of trying to avoid child support. Oh, Wah, wah. <laughs> oh man <laughs> yeah so first point is to alec i think we, we both right. said that one at the same time though nah you got it first it's fine <laughs> my brain was trying to go through all the different worms that can that do that True. and i'm like yeah. what was the name of that youtube video <laughs> what was that chapter name in the textbook <laughs> yep yeah yep. no we i flashed back to watching the videos in i think it was animal behavior Yeah, I watched them in high school in marine science. So this animal's penis is covered in spines that are so strong and so aggressive that whenever they mate with the female, they actually leave behind scars. It's dumb. And it's thought that this is going to perhaps in the future preventing this animal from mating again. Basically, 
kind of claiming ownership over this one particular female. Oh my God, that's horrible. Yeah. Also known as traumatic insemination. That sounds like ducks. Ducks are worse than I thought. It is not the duck. It's not the duck. It is not the duck. But they have barbed penises. Not this duck. That was an option. Oh my God. We got to wait for the the screwy. Oh, it's a corkscrew penis. Yeah. But they also have, I thought, something with... I'm thinking of a different kind of duck. There's so many ducks that carry so many diseases and have so many traumatic forms of mating. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I just know of ducks as being, like, really horrific. And do they not have barbed penises, like spike penises? I think, I believe some ducks do. But for this particular one, it is... Is it the Argonaut? Nope, it is not the Argonaut. Oh, that was my second guess, too. Um, is it the bean weevil? It is the bean weevil. I was like, I know nothing yep. about a bean weevil. I was going to say, think about something that's uh, chitinous in form. Oh, yeah, that makes sense oh, with the barbs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, as I mentioned, this is called uh, traumatic insemination because they'll actually leave behind mating scars within the female beetle's reproductive tract. That uh, sounds so, so painful. Yeah, yeah. It's thought that it uh, prevents the females from mating again or forces them to spend more effort raising the fertilized eggs that they already have to ensure that that male's genes are passed on and essentially in turn avoid the strain of future uh, lesions and stuff like that. So basically, if you're still pregnant with eggs, you can't have sex anymore. So you don't get stabbed internally. Oh my oh god. god. Yeah. In case you're curious, I have confirmed that along with cats, ducks are part of the barbed penis club. Yeah, no, there are several. I didn't know cats had barbed penises. Yeah. All right. Uh next one is this organism that for their penis it is eight times the body length. Barnacle. And can actually regrow. This organism is also hermaphroditic. Barnacle, yeah. Yep, it is the barnacle. Yeah, so barnacles are immobile. Basically, they cannot move. So in order to reproduce, they actually just kind of, I guess, erect their penis. And it just floats in the water current and will go touch other barnacles in their little barnacle patch. Such a violation. I know, yeah. Could you imagine just minding your own business as a barnacle? away. Yeah, you just have to let it happen. Like, so awful. Oh, my God. Tell your neighbor to put it away. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Penises are the worst. Like, they're just awful. Um, But, yeah, but it's actually interesting because for the barnacle, they were able to determine that the morphology of the penis actually differs depending on where the barnacle can be found so in places that have stronger currents the penis is going to be shorter and a bit thicker so it doesn't um, get ripped off by the current yeah, so, so so it can still be there but it can regrow so even if, if it gets oh, that's ripped, great news off, yeah um it'll grow back eventually i guess but oh boy reproductive tract scars and getting your dick ripped off this is so and this you is can all actually, traumatic. You can, yeah, you can observe oh, this. Wait for ducks. <laughs> um, when if you're like scuba diving and you see barnacles, I'm I'm sure you can see this happening. Just don't oh. get too close. Are you thoroughly scarred? Not like a bean weevil yet. Oh no, Alec! <laughs> We're not done yet. Oh boy! All right. Uh, <laughs> this animal's penis actually sings 
while it rubs on the abdomen of this creature and it creates a sound underwater that is effectively the same as standing 15 meters from a freight train going oh by. Oh my god! I'm gonna say the, the water, water boatman. boatman. It is the water boatman, yeah. So if you're a water boatman, basically, like, there's no hiding what you're doing right now. Like, <laughs> you're just, you're going crazy over there. Next up, this animal has a 17-inch long penis that is corkscrew in shape, Duck. and it is proportionally Ducks. the longest of uh, across all vertebrates and yep it is the duck it's also like ballistic and barbed i don't know if any of you have seen uh what is the it's the other jesus movie but it's not jesus it's noah it's got steve carell oh i've heard of it okay i have to google the name of this now because it is related to the duck this is not a tangent but while he's searching, you can actually look up pictures of this as well. I don't want to. Thanks. But it's interesting because this duck normally averages about 18 to 19 inches tall. So the penis is basically as long as it is. Oh, my God. Evan yeah. Almighty. That's the movie's name. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. They shared this fun fact in that movie. What? That was the first time I learned this fun fact about ducks. Boy. It's rated PG. Oh my god. Oh my god. So this episode is just me gushing about how amazing and adorable echidnas are, and then the other half is me going, oh my god, in horror. <laughs> yep. It's the Argonaut. Mm, I Do guess. I win the penis game? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to win the penis game? I just want to win. <laughs> this has got to be a really deep-seated urge for you to want to win this game. <laughs> look emily's not playing against me she's so competitive and i you know don't want her to be unhappy and sulky so i i am not a sore loser so winning against emily has consequences but no this is consequence free winning (laughs) i don't enjoy this (laughs) just like the female argonaut probably doesn't enjoy when this happens (laughs) yeah put your heart hands away while swimming and hunting for food, as animals going through the ocean, the penis will actually detach itself <gasps> from yeah. its body and will go and find... This is what I was talking about. <laughs> no, Sorry. it's crazy. I had to read this like five times to try and like figure out how this works. But yeah, it will detach itself from the male's body and swim around until it finds a lady Argonaut. And at first, though, scientists observed this entity in the water and thought it was a parasitic worm, but they actually just discovered <laughs> it's a zombie sperm bomb because oh it's, like, quasi-sentient. Like, it knows where it's going, but, uh, yeah. We have smartphones and Argonauts have smart dildos. Oh, my God. Yeah. Could you imagine just, like, flying dicks? I mean... No. In the world that we have to deal with, that would be horrific. They can also guide themselves, you were saying? Kind of, yeah. Do they have, like, a way to sense where a female Argonaut is? I don't think so, no. But I... Let me see if I can find the the screenshot. I'm mentally comparing these to Amazon delivery drones. (laughs) (laughs) and trying to figure out which one is better at package delivery so according to this article it says that it can swim on its own oh so it's not just floating in the current no 
Like a jellyfish. Which makes sense why scientists thought it was a parasitic worm. Because yeah. I'm sure they collected yeah, it was just some. Swimming. Yeah, and we're oh looking at it and we're like, okay, this has some sort of, like I said, quasi-sentient. <sighs> a lot of these animals are really painful and really final about yeah. mating. Yeah, I mean, with the exception of the lake duck, most of these animals are on the small side. So those are going to be the ones where... (laughs) Don't size shame these animals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess in both senses of the word, you could say. But uh, it it seems like they don't live that long anyways, for the most part. So it's okay for this to happen. It's okay Um, for them to shoot their shot. Yes, literally. There you go. And on that note, can we go back to talking about echidnas drinking tea? Yes. Yeah, that sounds better. In their very wholesome home with bows all over their quills and little top hats on each head of their four-headed dicks. (laughs) Oh, no. You had to ruin it. But it can only wear two at a time unless you you poke at it too much. The more you know. I wish I didn't. I want to know less. Speaking of knowing things, does any of us remember which animal we're doing next time? The butterfly. I feel like butterflies are the opposite of echidnas, because with echidnas, they've got all these spines all over, but they're actually like very pure and wholesome. Butterflies, everyone's like, oh, this beautiful, fragile butterfly. But they do literally eat corpses. So they look like a cinnamon roll. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas echidnas are cinnamon rolls. Yeah. 